as if drones and robots and driverless cars weren't enough, now we've got flying taxis to think about. Hi, everybody. I'm Bob Bowman, Managing Editor of Supply Chain Brain, and this is the Supply Chain Brain Podcast. Flying car has been a mainstay of science fiction for as long as the genre has existed. Now it might finally be poised to become reality in the form of flying taxis for carrying both people and goods over short distances. It's yet another proposed solution to the problem of conquering the final mile. In this current age of aggressive innovation, you probably wouldn't be surprised to hear that Uber is aiming at launching an air taxi service by 2020, and it's far from the only company contemplating this radical step. Another is Skyrunner, creator of a military-grade utility vehicle in the class of light sport aircraft. On the show today, I'm speaking with Skyrunner CEO Stuart Hamill. He'll talk about how the technology is evolving to the point where air taxis can become a regular feature of last-mile logistics. He'll discuss the technological, logistical, regulatory, and psychological obstacles standing in the way of a fully functioning system of flying cars. We'll find out whether air taxis are a thing of the near future or just pie in the sky. So here is my conversation with Stuart Hamill. Stuart Hamill, welcome to the show. Bob, thanks for having me. Uh, Stuart, we have barely gotten our brains around the concept of drones and driverless vehicles and stuff like that. All of a sudden now we're talking about air taxis and flying cars. And I just want to know the extent to which this is an actual thing that is potential in the short term, or is this just a long-term pie-in-the-sky, no-pun-intended type of concept? Where are we with this? This is the first time in human history we've had the technology to deliver and to execute well on a product. Of course, it's been a, a dream for 80, 90 years. It's been of the centrics to merge two things together to solve a problem because in the end, that's what technology does. It, it helps us be more efficient with anything, whether it's our time and communication or it's our ability to get from A to B. So there's always going to be a, a driving force with humans to solve that problem. The important thing is to frame it in the context of what you're trying to solve because it's not all things to all people. Initially, it's going to be only for the wealthier. It's going to be for the commercial, probably the executives going short distances, five or 10 miles. I don't see flying cars being a 500-mile solution. I see Cessnas and those sort of things being a solution. But you want to go 10,000 miles, you take a 777 or a 787. Mm -hmm. Flying cars, their niche is going to be five to 50 miles. It's not going to be going from one end of Dallas to another. By the time you do your walk around your pre-flight, take off and land, you're not going from A to B. You're going from A to B, and then you're going to have to drive or commute from B to C. And that's always been the dirty little secret of personal transport. It's good at getting you from taxiway to taxiway, but not, it's not where you want to be. You want to go from doorstep to doorstep. That is, yeah, as you say, door to door is the need. But help me to envision just what an air taxi will look like. Does it require a takeoff like a small aircraft? Is, is it vertical takeoff like a helicopter? What are we looking at here? I think we're going to see a lot more VTOL 
experience than the traditional takeoff and landing at the airport because it doesn't take the infrastructure. You don't have to pave a 5,000 foot strip. There's a lot of regulations that are going into the airport and there's always going to be regulations, especially flying. Where can you fly? You're not going to be landing these in front of your house, right? Not unless you live in a very large <laughs> area, you have 50 plus acres. Yeah. But anytime there's dense areas of people, you're going to see aircraft flying uh, in the less dense, actually no people, uh, even with the VTOL, that just reduces your infrastructure cost. But well, yeah. um, I think it's going to feel the same as, as a cab. It's just now you're going to be going up and over things much like a, a helicopter. I don't think it's going to be that foreign, but I do think it's coming faster than people think. Well, how does it differ from a helicopter? Because that certainly is a, a role that a helicopter plays today. Right. That's a really good question. I think the feeling is going to be similar to a helicopter, but the key to mass commercialization is going to be safety, regulation, and cost. So I think from a cost standpoint, the goal would be cheaper than a helicopter. Helicopters are pretty expensive operationally an hour. The driving force would have to be a savings. Otherwise, let's just use what we got. Safety would have to be improved. And regulations, they are going to, perhaps there's some movement. You don't have to have an airport to land, but you do need to land in a safe area where there's not dense people. But that's the advantage a helicopter has. So I think it's going to save on the infrastructure cost and the cost of transit, but initially it's going to be expensive. One of the disadvantages that a helicopter has, and I would imagine so would an air taxi, be that of noise. Is that mm. going to be an issue? Yeah, I think the market forces, the, the severe challenges to mass commercialization is going to be, I think you, you nailed it, takeoff and landing areas, especially in urban areas. You're going to have human error. Then on the other side of that is too reliant on technology, where you get a solar flare and your GPS is off. So there's a balance of control. Safety, ultimately, when you look at most accidents in aviation, is takeoff and landing. That's the bell curve because you're more vulnerable close to the ground. So you're going to have more takeoff and landings with air taxis than you are going to be commercial airliners because they're flying for hours before they land. Yeah, flight range and noise, but noise going to the battery, uh, going to multiple props, not one prop, you're going to have a reduction in noise. Uh, of course, the key, big key here is the word autonomous. So are we talking mm. about you're climbing into an air taxi without a pilot from the word go, or do they start out as piloted vehicles and then transition to pilotless with the development of the technology? You're going to see a trend towards the pilotless, but initially it's going to have a pilot or it's going to reserve the option for the pilot. I think it's too foreign to jump in something that's going to fly you without a pilot. I think there's going to be some anxiety there. I think it's going to be a natural progression. But the trick is having redundancy to your system, that something can't hack it, take it down, EMP. There's nothing that's going to take over control or hurt its ability to fly autonomously. If it does, like with us, we can glide in. We're flying our plan B. We're not at the whim of the grid. So there's a balance of being on the grid, relying on the grid, it adds a lot of efficiency, adds a lot of value. But the moment something happened, that asset can turn into a liability. So as long as they're balanced and they can have some human control, I think that's going to be a plus. But is it going to be like a driverless car in that the system, the onboard system, is essentially the pilot? Or will there be a human remote pilot somewhere overseeing oh, this yeah. or, or the very least monitoring it? That's a good question. I think the market will dictate comfort level. And I don't, I don't know if it's going to be price as the driving force, cost of making them uh, safety. The pitch is going to have to always come down. The baseline is going to be safety. The next one's going to be cost. Regulations are always going to be the hurdle. That's going to be the area in which you can operate. If you're going from A to B and you have to drive from B to C or take a bike, what did that just cost? Was it faster just taking a taxi or an Uber or a Lyft? But I think your question's valid, but I don't know if I'm going to be able to answer it. I know that there's going to be a push towards autonomy, but I think people have got to be careful 
of the pilot list, that, that there's always a plan B for control. Small drones already have raised issues of airspace. Congestion and control can't be too close to an airport, can't be too close to a number of different things. This, of course, sounds like the airspace problem on steroids because you've got a large enough vehicle to carry one or more passengers. So what's going to be the consideration there? I mean, you're trying to deal with congestion on the ground, and all of a sudden you've got the problem of congestion in the sky and safety right. You know, near commercial aircraft. How is that going to be addressed? Right. That's a really good question. No one's asked me that. We'll look at it as a math problem. If you think of the United States as a whole, 98, 99% of the airspace is really very, very low traffic. It just condenses down to the class Bravo, which is like the LAX, the big airports where you have a lot of airlines coming in, Heathrow, JFK. These are big airports. The smaller airports don't have the traffic. So it's only when they start getting into these 10 mile radiuses that they become pretty congested. So outside of that, 98, 90% of the airspace, especially in rural areas, if you layered 20 highways up vertically and horizontally, you're nowhere near anybody. But accidents are more prone, the more dense and congested they get. Okay, now you're increasing the, the risk of an incident or an accident. But outside of that, in the rural areas, it's going to be like being on the highway alone. There's just no one in your way. So you think rural areas might be more feasible? Like, for instance, here in San Francisco, where I live, the airport's not that far away, and approaches to the airport can be in any number of directions over the city, depending on wind conditions and traffic conditions and weather conditions. So would that be a potential problem in a city like San Francisco, or is the height so different that it wouldn't be an issue? San Francisco is one of the easy ones. L.A. is actually one of the easy ones. A lot of them come in off the water on approach and departure. Mm -hmm. So you're going to have a lot. I think it's outside the 101 where it's congested. You're not going to be going towards the airport so much as away from it south. And if that saves you two hours, heck, I mean, 12 miles may save you two hours in that kind of traffic. So that's where I think it's going to have its highest and best use is in the denser areas, in rural areas where you're not on top of each other on airspace. Now, of course, along with the development of the vehicles of the aircraft itself must come the infrastructure to support it. You say if you're going to be landing and taking off from rooftops, for instance, you've got to have rooftops that can do that. There are selected ones now that can handle helicopters, but mm -hmm. not to a great degree. So how much infrastructure has to be created in support of this to make it a viable thing? Another good question. I think the expedience, I think you're going to lose a lot. And I think for most people, they're going to be uncomfortable landing on a rooftop with high winds, no matter how stable it is. Rooftops are pretty small landing pads. Then you have to take the elevator down, assuming there's no traffic and you're not waiting in line to you're the fourth elevator ride down. So I think you're going to find more of the infrastructure in leases with property might be 12 strategic leases around Dallas that have some infrastructure, uh, much like a billboard. So it could be a total investment in infrastructure and a small track of land where they land and take off. It's a pad. I think that's more feasible from getting out and stepping into a car or a bike or a motorcycle, whatever your next B2C is. They're capable. I just think it's going to be more popular landing on the ground. Uber is working with NASA and claims that it's going to be able to launch an autonomous drone flying taxi service in L.A. Mm -hmm. by 2020. How feasible mm -hmm. is that, and what are some of the obstacles to Uber accomplishing that goal? I think they're capable of doing it. I think that the technology, I know the technology is there. The speed of which technology is capable of achieving and, and what we have at our fingertips with machine-to-machine -machine learning and algorithms and AI, we're getting faster. And the technology that we have to mass produce from 3D printers to mass machining and tools with CAD, you put a file in and it pops out exactly what you want. They are close. I know that Google has made some huge strides. They're already 
doing a lot of testing in New Zealand. The technology is much closer than people know. It, it's right there. It's just getting the bugs out of the system. And they've got a heck of a partner. I mean, NASA, I mean, that's, that's a very good partnership. So you got a lot of smart people. They've been proven to be able to deliver the mail. And I think they could easily do it by t- 2020. I just think they're going to do it in Dallas. I think Dallas is going to be their first pick. With DFW Airport, one of the busiest in the world, right there smack in the middle of the uh, area. Right. But interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So what is Skyrunner? Tell me about that. Skyrunner is an accident, actually. I was building this for my kids. Uh, I love adventure. I skydive, scuba dive. I'm a pilot. I love adventure because it's always something to look forward to, right? And it gives you something to reflect on and reminisce about if you have a good experience through adventure. And you learn a lot about yourself. So I wanted to take that and trend and give that to my children for them to have moments that we've shared. I've taken them on adventures and they can reflect on that as they grow into mm-hmm. adults and learn about themselves. So I built it for our ranch out in Colorado and it just boomed into something. It got the attention of a lot of people, government, military agencies and their feedback loops along with off-road community, people that are professional off-road competitors that know how these things break, where the weak points are, where to beef them up. And this thing has turned into a marvel of a technology, probably the most adaptable vehicle I know in the world. It's highly redundant, so you could lose an engine and not be immobilized. It's redundant on parts, um, fluids. It's modular, so you can modify it to do different things, workloads, from ISR to something more proactive, putting some boots on the ground somewhere or extraction or emergency medical is one I see that's going to come up in in rural areas for medical transport where ambulances can't get to. It's highly serviceable. It's very simple. We rarely go to an airport to take off and land, which gives a lot of flexibility. But yeah, it's really evolved into this experience and this advanced military-grade platform that translates very well to an end user. You've acquired an FAA exemption for the operation of this vehicle. How, how did that happen, and, and how did you manage to do that, and what are the FAA issues that you face? The neat thing about FAA is their intent follows through with being pro-business, but they, they add a layer of safety and help businesses. They're like coaches for business to help you prepare for battle and think through logically all of your production and post-production once it leaves. So how do you make something safe? And, and so they've been fantastic to work with because they've made us a better company. There are minimum requirements on quality assurance. There's an expectation of how do you maintain safety once this leaves the building? If there's a part that needs to be altered and it, this, type, this came from this lot number on these three aircraft, how do you effectively communicate to those people? So from a safety standpoint, they add a lot of value. The exemption piece was interesting. We learned a lot. No one's done anything quite like this. So unlike traditional aircraft, we work off a pendulum effect, which means you're hanging. You have a weight hanging from the wing. It's not a fixed wing. It operates quite differently from a physics standpoint. So, for example, it's very stable. If for some reason you got a gust of wind or you were in some very complex weather, you can let go of all controls, draw up all power, and it will reconcile and balance itself. It wants to come back to a steady state of flight. I can't stall. The amount of weight that's hanging under the wing actually makes it more stable from the pendulum effect, and uh, it gives us more speed on the glide. So I can't reach. I've yet to reach a stall. I can't stall the aircraft yet, not without a meteorological event. It's possible, Mm -hmm. maybe. I've just not been able to do it. It's the only aircraft and parachute I've not been able to stall. 
So the increase in weight was really a function of safety first, but it had a lot of benefit that came with it. For military and government, they can fly two in the back. It has a higher payload. And with that payload comes, again, uh, an increase in safety. We have Fox shocks for landing gear. I don't know of an aircraft that's ever used off-road Fox shocks for suspension for a landing gear, but who knew they made such great landing gear? Because I can land in very complex terrain and smoother than most 777s can land on an active. It's interesting that you know FAA is so tough on drone developers to the point where they had to actually go outside of the United States to test them for the first time. And mm-hmm. yet here you are with an exemption to allowed to operate this thing in the United States. So is the FAA like taking a different view of, the, of this whole issue now? Or is there something fundamentally different about a so-called flying taxi that makes it safer or more feasible in the eyes of the agency to actually test on in U.S. airspace. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah well, that's, that's also that's very insightful. So it's probably a function of light sport uh, aircraft. The LSA, or light sport aviation, was a big move by the FAA in 2004. They created essentially a new category of aircraft. So mm-hmm. what it did, the intent was to broaden the possibility of aviation to the masses. And that's what light sport aircraft is for fun and recreation, but it's not commercial, right? It's not the intent isn't commercial uh, initially. It's to allow more people to access aviation that otherwise couldn't. It reduces the cost of the aircraft. They're not as expensive. It reduces the cost of training and the time it takes to get trained and to be a proficient pilot. But it's also very clear of where the airspace. You can fly in 98, 99% of the airspace in the U.S., the only place you, you're not allowed is Class Bravo, not unless they allow you to enter, which most of the time they don't want these smaller aircraft around the, the bigger ones. Class Bravo being around major airports? Correct. Of the, yeah, Correct. Uh-huh. Yeah. So it's the category that it was set up on a spectrum of types of aircraft. And ours is on that spectrum of complexity for aviation. The power parachute has been around for 40 years. It happens to have one of the best safety records in aviation. That's what I respected about it. If I'm putting my most cherished possessions, my kids in the back. But Mm -hmm. it has two input controls versus three. Most aircraft have three input controls, pitch, roll, and yaw. So you have foot rudders, you have aileron, so you can tilt it. You can put in a lot of different – you have a lot of controls. I can Mm -hmm. put extreme inputs in any of my two controls, and I don't put myself in a treacherous situation. They they happen to be safer, relatively speaking, and simpler. Being proficient, it took me 150 landings in a Cessna before I felt comfortable putting people in the aircraft with me. It took me one flight – in a powered parachute, and one flight in a Skyrunner that I felt comfortable putting anybody in the back with me. Clearly, you see a potential for so-called flying taxi service to become a regular mm-hmm. thing, but what is your best guess as to when, how, how far in the future might this actually be a reality, in your opinion? It would depend if it's mass commercialization or if it's just starting. I think you're going to start seeing air taxis in 2020, 2021. I think mass commercialization's probably going to be 2025 to 27 mm-hmm. to get the cost down. And when does it become autonomous in your mind? Well, the technology is already there for autonomous. It could um, be from the, get, you know, from the get-go. It could actually be potentially autonomous. Flying I think the driving force for autonomy is going to be public comfort. Is there a demand or is it too early? The second thing is going to be safety. And then the other force is going to be regulations. Will regulatory bodies allow human transport autonomous. You could get the other ones right and regulation puts you in a chokehold. Yeah, you've got a number of balls in the air that are the driving forces, but cost, public safety, and regulation, those are your critical 
keys. Well, we're going to be following this one with keen interest, and I would love to touch base with you again at some point in the future to see how this is going both in the U.S. and around the world, too. I'm sure other countries are contemplating the same thing. Uh, But in the meantime, Stuart Hamill, I want to thank you so much for being with us today to talk about the potential of uh, flying taxi services and Skyrunner specifically. Thanks very much for being with us. Bob, thanks for inviting me. I, I enjoyed talking to you, sir. That was my conversation with Stuart Hamill of Skyrunner, talking about the prospects for the development of flying taxis. We're online at www.supplychainbrain.com, where we post a new episode of this podcast for streaming or downloading every Friday. You can also read my Think Tank blog, watch thousands of videos, and access all of our other content, including the digital edition of our magazine. Look for us on Facebook and LinkedIn, and follow us on Twitter, at SCBrain. You can also download or subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. Got any comments or suggestions on this or any episode? Email me at rbowman at supplychainbrain.com. See you next time.